in the latest poll, the GOP trails Democrats in party affiliation 49% to 40%. But the GOP has a plan to overcome the deficit of the voting booth. Keep people out of the voting booth. <laughs> That'll work. I see no problem with that plan. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP. Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV. Out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. Seattle's KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe for you every day on the internets for your listening convenience. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, and I hate to uh, begin, kick off the show this way, but we do have some breaking news out of Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, where another uh, shooting at a high school Uh, has uh, brought reportedly multiple victims, including a police officer. Uh, It is unclear. Well, actually, now, as I'm speaking, just in from CNN, one person is announced dead here, and an officer has been injured, and one person is in custody after a school shooting in Knoxville, Tennessee, according to police. This um, just happened about an hour within the hour here uh, as we go on air. We'll keep our eyes on it if any more noteworthy information becomes available. So we've got a whole bunch of different stuff going on all at once today on uh, the broadcast. We will talk about some of it before we are joined by my guest to discuss a recent Supreme Court ruling that that you may not have heard about because it has to do with the media and the broadcast media. And kind of they don't want you to know about this sort of thing because you might be angry about it. Anyway, the um, FCC and the Supreme Court have now further consolidated ownership of broadcast media around the country. And um, hopefully this will remind you yet again of the importance of supporting the independent radio outlet that you are now listening to. Uh, to get your daily broadcast on as uh, those of us in the last remaining vestiges of the independent broadcast media 
over what are supposed to be our public airwaves continue to struggle to stay on those public airwaves, those non-corporatized public airwaves, which are becoming harder and harder to find. Um, Anyway, we will talk with uh, Sue Wilson about that shortly. Then, if time allows, I'll try to open up the phones. I know a bunch of folks wanted to get on last week, but we couldn't get to everyone regarding your experience being vaccinated for uh, COVID or trying to become vaccinated or why you don't want to become vaccinated. So hopefully we'll have at least a few minutes uh, for open phones, if you will, near the back of the hour to discuss, well, whatever you would like at 818-985-5735, at least while these are still your public airwaves. Uh, But speaking of COVID and vaccines, let's start there again today as we once again have some good-ish news to kick things off. The uh, weekend has yielded yet another record on the vaccination front with 4.6 million shots in arms on a single day on Saturday. That crushes the previous Saturday's then new record of just over four million shots. So the Biden administration's efforts uh, continue successfully to ramp up nationally. Many states are opening up vaccination to all adults this week. And last week, the administration announced that all adults in all 50 states would be eligible for vaccines by next Monday, April 19. So we are likely to see still more record highs uh, over the uh, over the coming weekend as far as the distribution and injection of those shots around the country. Here in Los Angeles, residents age 16 and over will be able to get vaccinated against COVID-19. At least they'll be able to get on a list to do so as early as Tuesday of this week. Uh, including at city-run sites in Los Angeles, according to officials on Sunday. Mayor Garcetti said uh, open vaccine eligibility to all Angelinos who are 16 and older is a major milestone in our efforts to get more shots into more arms and defeat COVID-19 once and for all. He went on to say that he urges patients patience as we continue to ramp up our operations as we obtain more doses and enter this new phase of our campaign to end the pandemic. Now, for those hoping to get a shot, I know that it has been a struggle for some to find an available place to get one still. I actually spoke with a neighbor of mine over the weekend who had been trying to find a right aid uh, that had availability. And as it turns out, uh, she gets her health coverage actually through Kaiser Permanente and hadn't realized that Kaiser had tons of of shots and slots to get them available. That's also where I got my first shot uh, just over a week or so ago. And I will note that they had plenty of open slots last week when we signed up. Uh, My neighbor tells me that she checked kp.org. That's the website, correct, Desiree? Yes, that's the correct website. And of course, this is for Southern California and the Los Angeles area. Other areas might have different availabilities, but it's worth checking. Uh, Yeah. And well, KP, uh, Kaiser Permanente is not only in Southern California. True. We don't know if, if, if like the ones in Southern California, they all have a bunch of availability in California and in other states. But um. I just want to note that Kaiser membership is not necessary to sign up for a shot via Kaiser Permanente. It is free whether you are a member there or not. You can go to kp.org 
and uh, and sign up. Like I said, they had plenty of availability. Uh, my neighbor, as a matter of fact, she, she was, as I said, she was looking for a Rite Aid. And she thought, oh, you know what? Let me check KP, Kaiser Permanente. On, this was on Friday, and she said, oh, my God, they've got hundreds of available slots today. So she went right in that day. So please help me uh, to spread uh, that word to your friends and neighbors and coworkers, as my uh, neighbor noted, even as a Kaiser member, nobody had reached out to her to sort of help her find uh, a vaccine. She she had to be proactive. So let's all help each other to get this done so we can get back to something reflecting normal life at some point soon in this country, in this world. Pretty please? Dr. Paul Simon. No, not that Paul Simon. Uh, this one is the chief science officer for the L.A. County Department uh, Health Department, noted that when everyone 16 and up becomes eligible... There will be further challenges for people who have less access to online appointment sites uh, as a wider portion of the popu- uh, population uh, with greater computer access begins to crowd them out. He noted that we are quite concerned with this opening up of eligibility, that those with less resources, less availability, uh, less ability, I should say, to navigate these online appointments Uh, or who are faced with waits on our call line will have more difficulty getting appointments, he said. Uh, And that could have the unfortunate consequence of worsening the current disparities that we are currently seeing between various communities. We may see a similar bottleneck across the country in the coming days as we near the April 19 date, when all of those 16 or older in the, across the country will be eligible nationally. Nearly 36% of adults right now, however, across the U.S. have now received at least one dose of the vaccine, which, uh, in fact, is, is pretty good. In the race between the vaccine and the virus variants that we have been referencing of late on this program, the American Prospect's David Dayan notes that some important context on this front is necessary. He writes about this in his first 100 newsletter today, <clears throat> which um, until Biden took office, the newsletter was uh, titled Unsanitized. Uh, it was closely documenting the national and worldwide battle against the virus. Anyway, Dan notes that six states are now experiencing caseloads of over 200 cases per 100,000 residents, which is very high. And in general, high caseloads are located right now in the Northeast and the Upper Midwest. The South, he says, is looking okay, though Florida is beginning to trend very badly. The Southwest and the Plains, he says, are mostly fine, and California is the third lowest in the country right now for infections. There were just, get this, 10 deaths reported in all of the 10 million-plus Los Angeles County area on Sunday. That is less than half of the national average. But I will note here that uh, reporting on the weekends tends to flag when it comes to all of these numbers. Uh, So don't take too much from that number for now. But it's looking pretty good. Ten million people, only ten deaths, which 
given what we've had over the past year, is uh, is pretty good, yes, I hate to say. It's, uh, it's, of course, horrible for those families and the people that love them, but it is a good sign that we're getting to the other side of this, at least here in California and in other areas where they are ramping up their vaccinations and uh, getting more people vaccinated as quickly as possible. That said, however, uh, some of these states that are not doing well especially the state of Michigan, uh, is really, really right now in trouble. And uh, Dan notes that if you want to focus on a state that has a combination of all of the factors, high positivity rate from testing, high case rate by a factor of nearly two, uh, growing, growing death rates, well, Michigan is lagging behind all other states, um, uh, in the nation at this point on most of those fronts. Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer has asked high schools in the state to voluntarily suspend in-person classes and youth sports for two weeks, as this is seen as a major vector for spread. But he also notes that this is someone, Governor Whitmer, uh, who was almost kidnapped the last time she called for anything mandatory in the state. So begging schools to pretty please uh, be reasonable here is sort of all that is left for her. After Trump, you'll recall last year, tweeted out a call to, quote, liberate Michigan. And yes, his followers heard him and put Whitmer and the rest of the state at great risk. And that pushback against advice from health experts appears at this time to have been a very costly one. While infection numbers are generally either plateauing or rising moderately in uh, a number of states, they are absolutely spiking in Michigan. And, of course, uh, what happens in Michigan does not necessarily stay in Michigan, unfortunately. We do not have border walls up yet, yet anyway, around every state. Uh, and she has been calling for a surge of vaccines, which for now, for some reason, the White House is uh, is not agreeing to. Dan thinks that's a terrible idea. He says, uh, well, why isn't the White House doubling vaccine allocations to Michigan? He says the governor is asking for that. It makes total sense and would involve next to no sacrifice from the other states. Michigan is only about 3 percent of the U.S. population. So doing the math, he says the rest of the nation would get about 97 percent of their previously planned allocation if we doubled the supply to Michigan right now. Uh, and this would be important, again, as I say, not just to Michigan, but to the rest of the country, since, you know, people are able to come and go freely in and out of Michigan. He says the White House has inexplicably re resisted this. COVID-19 response team coordinator Jeffrey Zients has promised more vaccinators and testing kits and treatments for uh, for Michigan which uh, acknowledges that, yes, there is a big problem there. But Dan notes there are two possible solutions to something like this, where the spread is such that contact tracing is once again useless. He says, one, you can have non-pharmaceutical interventions like a lockdown, which he describes as highly unlikely now in a state like Michigan, and two, pharmaceutical interventions like vaccines, which is entirely possible. Even if a lockdown were possible, he notes, why wouldn't you add to the available vaccines if you have the opportunity to do so? 
He says it's in the country's best interest to surge vaccines, the entire country's best interest to surge vaccines to Michigan, but speculates that the White House resistance is maybe fear of bad press, worries about favoritism or something. Um, but uh, President Biden has insisted that he would follow the science, so Dan says he should try it. Now, in this case, uh, this afternoon... Biden's CDC director, Rachel, uh, Rochelle Walensky, er, uh, argued that a vaccine surge to Michigan would only have a limited success. And that is now uh, why lockdowns are needed, she said, of the type that, you know, led to uprisings from the right winger MAGA mob last year in Michigan. So when you have an acute situation, um, extraordinary number of cases like we have in Michigan, the answer is not necessarily to give vaccine. In fact, we know that the vaccine will have a delayed response. The answer to that is to really close things down, to go back to our basics, to go back to where we were last spring, um, last summer, and to, to shut things down, to flatten the curve, to decrease contact with one another, to test to the extent that we have available to, to contact trace. Sometimes you can't even do it at the capacity that you need. But really what we need to do in those situations is shut things down. I think if we tried to vaccinate our way out of what is happening in Michigan, we would be disappointed that it took so long for the vaccine to work. Well, she's the professional, Desi Doyen. So I don't really understand it. It seems like they could surge vaccines there. But for some reason, the administration is against it. In this case, you got the head of the CDC making the case against it for some I reason. Know, and I know, and I don't quite understand it. I, I think they either. can do a much, much better job of explaining that or just going ahead and doing the surge as requested. Yeah, I don't get it. Uh, but uh, I will try. It, maybe if you do, uh, feel free to give us a call a little bit later, 818-985-5735, if you have any thoughts on this. But, of course, we'll be keeping our eye on it either way as this moves forward because, as I said, what happens in Michigan decidedly does not stay in Michigan. Similarly, by the way, what happens in Georgia definitely does not stay in Georgia. And the blowback right now against Georgia Republicans and their new voter suppression law continues to take a financial toll on the peach state. Even as Republicans in other states like Arizona and Texas uh, and, and others beyond that move forward to enact similar voter suppression measures that were recently adopted in Georgia. Well, today, actor and producer Will Smith and director Antoine Fuqua said on Monday that they are pulling their upcoming film production for a film called Emancipation out of Georgia because of the state's new voting law, which has been denounced as an effort to make voting harder for the state's black population. This is a slavery-era drama, and it is the first major production to cite the law as a reason to leave the state, which has become a major center for TV and film production in recent years. They give generous tax incentives to Hollywood productions out there now, and it has become a major hub for Marvel Studios, for Netflix, and, and other heavyweights uh, in the industry. Smith and Fuqua said in a joint statement today, quote, At this moment in time, the nation is coming to terms with its history and is attempting to eliminate vestiges of institutional racism to achieve true racial justice. We cannot, they say, in good conscience provide economic support to a government that enacts regressive voting laws designed to restrict voter access. 
They said the new Georgia voting laws are reminiscent of voting impediments that were passed at the end of Civil War Reconstruction to prevent many Americans from voting. Regrettably, they note, we feel compelled to move our film production from Georgia to another state. Now, whether or not that's a good idea, whether or not it will prompt other studios to uh, reconsider production in Georgia, that is not yet known. Stacey Abrams, along with Tyler Perry, who owns his, his own studio in Atlanta, uh, they have urged uh, others in Hollywood not to uproot production despite outrage over the new law. But how to best take action against Georgia and other states where Republicans are moving quickly to pass these bills that roll back voting rights, that continues, uh, thankfully, to be a very hot topic. More than 100 chief executives and corporate leaders gathered online on Saturday to discuss taking new action to combat the controversial state voting bills that are now being considered all across the country, including the one recently signed in Georgia. Executives from major airlines, retailers, manufacturers, plus at least one NFL owner, talked about potential ways to show that they opposed the legislation, including by halting donations. Aha! There's an idea to politicians who support these bills and even delaying investments in states that pass the restrictive measures. While no final steps were agreed upon during the Saturday meeting, it represents an aggressive dialing up of corporate America's stand against controversial voting measures across the country, a sign that their opposition to the laws did not end with the fight against the Georgia legislation that was passed in March. It also comes just days after Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and his unspeakable hypocrisy when he, uh, a guy who has gone all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn bipartisan campaign finance reform laws in order to ensure that corporations are lawfully able to pump tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars in dark money into politics and into political campaigns that they should now, quote, stay out of politics, at least if they disagree with Republican legislation. My warning, if you will, to corporate America is to stay out of politics. It's not what you're designed for. You get my drift. If I were running a major corporation, I'd stay out of politics. Oh, would you? Would you, Mitch? Would you really? Unbelievable uh, hypocrisy. Uh, and, you know, and I got to tell you, uh, in one sense, I, I, I'm, I'm happy to hear about all of the corporate pushback to these measures. In another sense, I'm somewhat flummoxed that it actually takes corporate opposition to these laws uh, to get GOP lawmakers to give a damn, to pay attention at all to these concerns. Frankly, corporations should have virtually no say in our politics. On that, I actually agree with McConnell there. Of course, McConnell was lying. But, you know, after his uh, political action committee last year raised more than $400 million from corporations and their executives, which is the most of any PAC in the country, it is absurd to pay attention to a word that this guy says. Still, it is just aggravating, at least to me, even as I'm happy to see that, you know, these corporations and, and powerful executives jumping in, uh, because if they don't, 
Democracy itself, apparently, won't have anybody fighting for it who might gain the attention of Republican lawmakers out there who are hoping to strip certain people of voting rights. I mean, I I, I just, you know, the fact that we have to lean on corporations, that it is not enough that the citizenry are outraged uh, by all of this, that itself is maddening. Uh, So they continue to talk about that. And it's not just uh, uh, big business, by the way. It's also big law, as the New York Times reports today. A coalition of 60 major law firms have now come together, uh, quote, to challenge voter suppression legislation and to support national legislation to protect voting rights and increase voter participation. That, according to Brad Karp. The chair of the uh, law firm Paul Weiss and the organizer of this group of uh, law firms, Uh, their their group has not formally been announced, but New York Times got word on it and spoke to Karp, uh, who said the coalition would, quote, emphatically denounce legislative efforts to make voting harder, not easier for all eligible voters by imposing unnecessary obstacles and barriers on the right to vote. Many of Wall Street's most powerful legal firms are also reportedly part of this effort. Karp said we plan to challenge any election law that would impose unnecessary barriers on the right to vote and that would disenfranchise underrepresented groups in our country. The firms will work with the Brennan Center for Justice, the nonprofit organization at NYU, to identify laws that it might challenge in court. Carp said that he could uh, that uh, that working with them could include challenging the voting law that Republicans passed in Georgia last month, where already three lawsuits have been filed by nonprofit organizations. Michael Waldman, the president of the Brennan Center, said this quote puts legislature legislators on notice that if there are laws that are unconstitutional or illegal, they will face pushback from the legal community. He went on to say that what's happening right now is beyond the pale. He said you're hearing hearing that from the business community, community, you're hearing it from the legal community. Well, the legal community, we might have expected them to bring lawsuits. I think all of this is going to come down to money and whether or not those... Uh, Whether or not those law firms, whether or not those businesses are willing to stop giving money to Republicans. I think that is where the rubber is going to hit the road, as you say, because I hear a lot of pledges. I hear a lot of talk. I hear the CEO saying, you know, we're thinking about we're going to stop that money. It's terrible. terrible. We might might actually do something. We're (laughs) going to think about that really hard for a while. Whereas, you know, somebody like Will Smith, an actor, is doing it. Uh, Well, there you go. Uh, And others need to uh, follow suit, I'm afraid. Uh, You know, so, again, I'm not entirely comfortable that we have to root for the for the business and and legal communities here to do the right thing, to be the, the voices that replace those of actual American citizens who already oppose these laws in big numbers. But, you know, at this point, with democracy at stake, I guess to uh, to paraphrase Don Rumsfeld, We go to war with the army that we have, not necessarily the army that we, uh, well, in this case, the citizenry that Republicans should be listening to. 
uh, were it not for the fact that those same businesses and legal communities sat silent for years, even as Republicans gerrymandered their state houses to the point where GOP lawmakers don't actually have to listen to anyone. They certainly don't have to listen to their constituents in order to be reelected year after year after year. So maybe if you cut off their money, that might give them pause. All right. Speaking of not listening to the citizenry, the ability to make sure that the citizenry itself stays dreadfully uninformed and disinformed over our public airwaves, which have been taken over by corporations who are not usually on the right side of issues that are critical to democracy and to the citizenry in in much of the nation. Well, um, at the U.S. Supreme Court recently, the ability for those corporations to continue disinforming the public just got easier as uh, the decision will allow more media consolidation of our precious public airwaves. Sue Wilson of the Media Action Center joins us next to explain, followed by, if time allows, some of your calls on any of this today at 818-985-5735. Line up now if you want to jump in. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. back to the broadcast Radio Gaga live uh, from Southern California out to you. Actually, uh, we hear a lot of Radio Gaga all over the airwaves. We have a lot of television Gaga all over those public airwaves as more and more uh, corporate consolidation happens. And that just got a whole lot easier. So I want to follow up a bit today to explain, uh, following up on a story that we covered last September, when progressive media activist Sue Wilson and former Republican FCC official Art Bellenduke on this program and at Bradblog.com exposed how the right-wing broadcasting Behemoth, a Sinclair Broadcasting Group, had been scooping up control of local TV stations in major markets around the country in apparent violation of FCC rules, even as the FCC was turning a blind eye to the obvious charade of these fake companies that were created by Sinclair, essentially, to try and avoid rules that limited ownership of more than one TV station in major markets to any one company. Bell and Duke had uh, filed petitions to deny license renewals for uh, three different TV stations in the Baltimore market whose ownership was disguised by essentially sham companies that were all controlled by Sinclair to disguise the fact that Sinclair controlled Baltimore's WBFF, WNUV, and WUTB, all of them. When according to FCC rules... They should only be allowed to control one of those stations. As Bell and Duke told me at the time, 
A company named Cunningham Broadcast had a, uh, a president whose salary was actually determined and set by Sinclair itself. And that company owned 20 stations in 20 different markets, all of which were paired miraculously with Sinclair all over the country in order to skirt FCC rules. Sue Wilson on this show argued that diversity of voices of what we get to hear on our local TV stations was at stake here as local television news, she said, is really the medium that most Americans trust more than any other on uh, on TV today for their news. Bell and Duke insisted the FCC was aware of this sham ownership, but did nothing about it. Well, in fact, the FCC did do something about it. They attempted to change the rules to allow more consolidation of media ownership, to allow these far-right companies like Sinclair to essentially control all of the local network affiliate stations in many uh, major markets around the country. And... After a federal court ruling in 2017 found that the FCC under Donald Trump's then FCC chair Ajit Pai, who's a far right winger himself, um, when he tried to in, in response to his attempt to change this rule, the uh, the federal court found that he actually violated the Administrative Procedures Act by failing to actually study the effect of this further media consolidation, particularly on women and minority-owned broadcasters before formalizing the new rule. In turn, Ajit Pai appealed the matter to the U.S. Supreme Court, which, as Sue Wilson reports at bradblog.com today, heard the case on January 19th, the very last full day of the Trump administration, before subsequently ruling uh, at the beginning of this month that, yes, the new rule created by the FCC was just fine, overturning the uh, Third uh, Circuit Court, who said, no, it wasn't, even though, as the plaintiffs in the case, the nonprofit Prometheus Radio Project pointed out, there was virtually no effort whatsoever made by the FCC to learn the impact of this rules on organizations like Prometheus and other women and minority-owned groups. Most troubling, perhaps, as Wilson points out in her report today at bradblog.com, the FCC created this catch-22 for groups to oppose the, uh, these uh, these sort of rules from the FCC by requiring research by private organizations to counter public da data, but that data itself was hidden by the FCC. It's all very confusing. Are you confused? Me too. Joining us now to hopefully unconfuse us all is Sue Wilson. She's an Emmy and AP award-winning broadcast journalist turned media reform activist, director of the media reform documentary called Broadcast Blues and the founder of the Media Action Center. And yes, still one of our go-to sources on all things FCC-related. Uh, Sue Wilson, welcome back to the broadcast. Brad, I'm so happy to be here. And, you know, this is the worst 
decision that nobody knows about. Yeah, I know. And I wonder why they don't know about it, because, well, the broadcast media, the corporate broadcast media loves it. So they sure haven't spent a lot of time letting Americans know about it. So, Sue, the, the, the crux of this case, as you report today at Bradblog.com, appears to be less about whether this rule is actually good for our nation or democracy or public airwaves or really anybody, and more about whether the FCC actually did the job that it is supposed to do administratively when issuing new rules like this. What did they do that was originally found to be in violation of the Federal Administrative Procedures Act by the uh, Third uh, Circuit uh, Court of Appeals, but then was apparently just fine for a unanimous decision by the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, Brad, this is a case that's actually been going on since 2004. Mm. Prometheus Radio, way back then, pushed back against uh, the then uh, 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 chair of the FCC. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, what was his name? This would have been Um, under George W. Bush back in 2004. Yeah. Uh, And and what they did was they, they... put in place all of these rules that have just gone in place. And let me explain to the, the audience what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Imagine that in your hometown you have one owner who could have two network TV stations and one or two additional non-network TV stations and the local newspaper and eight radio stations. In oh. many towns, that equates every single yeah. local reporter in town. Yep. And the FCC said, well, you didn't show us any evidence to say they can't make this rule, so we're going to let them make this rule. I'm sorry, the, the Supreme Court told the, the, decided that the FCC mm-hmm. had not received any evidence that says that this shouldn't happen. The problem is, is that the FCC themselves is in charge of that evidence. And it's all really hidden in these public files. Mm-hmm. Now, here's a concept almost nobody gets. You and I own the airwaves. Mm-hmm. And because we own the airwaves, the broadcasters have to report to us because mm-hmm. we're the owners. Right. And so there are something called public files, which many of us worked very hard to make sure these broadcasters had to put online so that you can actually physically go through them. All right? The problem being that, according to Cheryl Lianza, who is one of the, the co-counsels mm-hmm. in the case, let me just read this. For the plaintiffs, right? a very right? sparse record, mm-hmm. okay, that the, the FCC made the case that, like, well, you know, we had this rule change, we wanted to change the rules, mm-hmm. and nobody really gave us any good data to say why we couldn't, and the Supreme Court looked at it and said, well, yeah, I don't see any good data here, so okay. <laughs> so we'll let you do it anyway. Even though there's no good data, get data, but the reason there is no good data is because, uh, as you report, the FCC used to commission its own studies, and now it seems that uh, they are sort of putting notice out, hey, if anybody has a problem with this rule, uh, has any data, has any studies, let us know, to the point where uh, Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh, who wrote the uh, decision for the court, acknowledged that there was a very sparse record on any of this. And you seem to be suggesting that the reason the record is so sparse is because the FCC did not bother to actually compile any information on either side of the record. Is that right? Yeah, let me tell you what Cheryl Lianza said. She was a co-counsel. And, quote, 
The sparse record is the FCC's own fault. Any analysis of this question must rely on the FCC's data. And yet, the FCC has long permitted broadcast licensees to avoid filing their ownership data. The FCC's just playing a shell game. We talked, you know, months ago about the mm-hmm. shell game that they're allowing Sinclair to play. Mm-hmm. And now really what they're doing is they're letting broadcasters all throughout America play this same shell game. Meanwhile, people like me who mm-hmm. are out there trying to figure this out can't access the data. Now, because of... of why, why, can't, why can't you access the data? Is that because the, these stations have not actually filed that data with the FCC? That's part of it. Mm-hmm. That, that is part of it. There's a second part of this. When I got involved in this, and I stumbled into this case, really because of the story that I did with the Brad blog, okay? Mm-hmm. On Sinclair, yeah, last year. On Sinclair. Right. And, and I found out that there was a Supreme Court case, and what I discovered was that, you know, there's, the way this really works is the FCC must provide a special waiver for any company to have two network stations in one town. Uh, and so when mm-hmm. I started to look into this, to reply, to respond, to write a brief for the Supreme Court, I looked initially at the FCC's own research. I couldn't find anything. There was nothing. Then I looked in the public files. I tried to figure out exactly when these waivers were given. I couldn't find that either. Hmm. There is information that should be available that I was unable to find. And because there was such a short uh, time deadline mm-hmm. to file a brief with the Supreme Court, I had to abandon that line of inquiry. The uh, bottom line is this information should be available. It's not available. And it's the FCC's own fault that the Supreme Court bought the argument that, like, well, we asked people to give us data and nobody did, so oh well. So they're not giving, so, so they're counting on uh, non-governmental groups like yours, like Media Action Center, to sort of uh, bring this data to them to tell them why this is a problem. And uh, at, so they're hoping for that private data, as you describe it, even while the public data is actually hidden from the public, that uh, groups like yours would not be able to make sense of all of this because they're not actually getting the information they need from the FCC. Is that the sort of catch-22 you're referring to? That is the catch-22. Um, it, it, and the worst thing is, is that now at this point, this rule does go into effect. Yeah. Um, I want to talk for a second about what I discovered, what mm-hmm. I was able to present to the Supreme Court, even though it didn't matter, mm-hmm. because it didn't relate specifically to the case itself, which, mm-hmm. which is, did they get enough information before they made the rule mm-hmm. in order to make the rule? The Supreme Court said, yes, they did. But what the Supreme Court didn't look at is the bad, terrible things that are already happening because of this rule. I mean, we had volunteers who looked through, uh, let's see, we had Nexstar, Sinclair, Tegna, Gray TV. Mm-hmm. Um, and between those groups, we found that they already are owning, in 70 different communities, they've got more than one network TV station. 70 communities across this country, and in you know, that they told the Supreme Court, these broadcasters said, well, we have to do that because local broadcasting, local news is really in trouble. We really must protect local newspapers, and so we really need to own these two network uh, broadcast stations as well. 
Otherwise, you know, we just can't make enough money in order to keep going in this business. And and but, but they the re- also said yeah yeah go, said, go ahead yeah they also said that it was very important that they had these two stations because then they could consolidate their own uh, local news into better and more local news for a community. Yeah, let's make it a benefit for the community. Mm-hmm. Guess what? Yeah, what we discovered: fifty-three different towns across this country. Yeah, they've got two, maybe even three local stations, like Sinclair does in Columbus, Ohio. They're not putting more money into news. They're taking one story and putting that same news story on yep. all three of their stations. Yep. And and so so you're actually getting less news, not more, not better. Uh, and the corporations are uh, increasing their profits, of course. By the way, does this mean, does this decision mean, Sue Wilson, that... Um, you know, that, that the expose that you and, and, and Art Bellanduke, who, again, is a Republican former FCC official, uh, and he was just as upset about all of this as you were, uh, does it mean that uh, that expose on these sham companies that were set up secretly by Sinclair, that all of that has now been made perfectly legal with this uh, SCOTUS decision, and that one company like Sinclair can now, in fact, legally own uh, and or control uh, several different network affiliate stations all in the same media market? Um, the short answer to that is yes. However, there is a, a whole different aspect to what Art Bellanduk and I are working on. Um, when Sinclair Broadcasting got involved with their Tribune merger, and then you will recall that the merger blew up, the reason the merger blew up was because Sinclair Broadcasting lied to the Federal Communications Commission, and even Chair Ajit Pai took that one personally. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they, they called a hearing to look into Sinclair's lies. They ended up giving a fine to the FCC. The formal term is consent decree. But Art and others who are attorneys who worked with the FCC... Wait, wait, they, wait they, gave, they didn't give a fine to the FCC. They gave I'm, sorry. A, a, uh, I'm sorry. They gave a fine to Sinclair. To Sinclair. Bottom. Okay, right. Okay. Millions of dollars. Okay. Um, bottom line is... They're not able to do that. They called for a public hearing. This all must be done publicly. They've been doing it secretly. Uh, so just a couple of weeks ago, um, with Art as my attorney, I have sued the FCC to get that information to find out exactly what went on in those secret meetings. That's at the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals now. So we're still looking at that. Uh, and, Sue, I'm running behind here, unfortunately, so I, I want to hit you with a couple of uh, real quick questions. Because this uh, uh, the opinion that was issued by Kavanaugh, it sort of echoed for me, at least when I read it, uh, it echoed Chief Justice J- John Roberts' majority opinion when the court gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013 when he essentially argued, oh, racism at the voting booth was no longer a problem. So the Voting Rights Act's restrictions on, uh, you know, jurisdictions with a long history of racial discrimination at the voting booth, that was no longer needed. Well, that echoed for me when I read Kavanaugh arguing here that, quote, the FCC considered the record evidence and reasonably concluded that the three ownership rules at issue were no longer necessary to serve the agency's public interest goals. Uh, because what media consolidation and minority ownership uh, getting locked out is is no longer a concern in the U.S. Apparently, you know the very sad part is that the brief that I wrote and others wrote were not considered at all. This was really a very narrow administrative decision, saying that if you uh, want to communicate information to these administrative agencies when they're making their rules, you have to do that in a timely manner. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, my information came out later. But, of course, my information showed not the current data, but rather the effect of the rule change. Mm-hmm. That didn't get considered at all. Well, uh, they're not interested in actual information, apparently. Now, uh, before I let you go, Sue, is there... Uh, and by the way, it was um, uh, Colin Powell's son, uh, Michael Powell, who I think was the FCC chair back during the uh, George W. Bush administration, whose name you were reaching for earlier. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but is there, you know, has there been a change to the FCC now that we have a new administration? I'm assuming Trump's far-right chair, Ajit Pai, is no longer in place. Has a new FCC chair been seated at this time? And do you expect uh, that the FCC will somehow change this rule yet again, even though it takes a really long time to change these rules? I can tell you that Jessica Rosenworcel is the acting chair at the FCC. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that the work she's doing right now is very, very good. I can tell you that we do not have... The, the last Biden pick. Um, there's five members of the FCC commission. We have two Democrats and Republicans who are in place at this point. But I can also tell you that this is not going to just go away. They're, they're going to be able to chip away at this at the margins. But, no, this is, uh, this is with us. Uh. And the next time a Republican president comes along, you can bet that the waivers are going to be the, the, the mm-hmm. ability to how these two stations are going you know, to flourish. Yep. This is why I'm really calling on the House Subcommittee on Disinformation to pay attention. Um, they've been holding hearings in Congress, mm-hmm. and they're very, considered, very, very concerned about local news, as they well should be. They, I really believe, Brad, that Congress has to get involved in this. And you're finding that Republicans and Democrats are interested in this. Mm. And as with Art Bellenduck, the attorney that uh, filed my amicus brief, mm-hmm. is another Republican, former chair of the Republican Party in the state of Louisiana. Yep. Understand that this is bad for our whole country. You know, I'm hoping that Republicans get this, that they understand it, that they want to do something about it. I'm dubious that they do. I feel like they're out there pretending that they're being censored in, you know, uh, social media and, oh, their, you know, their viewpoints are being shut out, uh, which is frankly the opposite of the case. So I don't know if they will want to change anything. I hope you're right that there is interest on the right in that. And I'll point folks to uh, bradblog.com for more information, for more details, and, of course, to mediaactioncenter.net. Uh, to get more information on how you can take action to let your legislators know that we need to do something about this. Because I got to tell you, the public airwaves are, well, they're still here, but they're, you know, being controlled not by the public, but by the corporations. And it is uh, so important to, you know, continue supporting the few independent outlets uh, you know, with access to our airwaves, like you are probably listening to right now, if you're listening to the broadcast, because uh, it is very difficult for you know any non 
corporatist point of view to make its way onto what used to be our public airwaves. I'm running late here, Sue, so i got to jump out, but I'll point folks to your article at bradblog.com. SCOTUS approves FCC rule allowing further consolidation of local media outlets. You can find uh, more, of course, at mediaactioncenter.net, and you can follow Sue on the Twitters at Sue Blues Wilson. Sue, always great talking with you. Uh, thanks for everything you're doing to get this out there, because Lord knows the corporate media is not informing the public about this story at all. It's so dangerous. Thanks for the airtime. You bet. All right, quick break, and we'll come back with uh, just a couple. We have time for a couple of calls, I hope. Uh, 818-985-KPFK, 818-985-5735. On this story or uh, any of the others we talked about, the the, the COVID vaccinations, the voting rights pushback, uh, voter suppression pushback, I should say. 818-985-KPFK is our phone number. I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to The Bradcast. <laughs> Five major corporations now own over 80% of all media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Your support helps us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations across the country. You can make a real difference by supporting independent media. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. Join us at bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We've got just a few minutes running late, as usual, for change. What? Me? Late? 818-985-5735 is our phone number. Let me go to uh, Doogie in Chicago. Oh, Doogie, is this the same Doogie that uh, follows me on the Twitters? Hi, Brad. Yes, I finally get to call in. Yay! Good to hear from you, Doogie. How are you, sir? <laughs> oh, man, this is my topic, and you know this. Um, I just really want to give a quick rundown. Um, so, for an example, uh, with the bankruptcies of, of iHeartRadio, uh, Cumulus Broadcasting, and now recently Alpha Media, mm -hmm. they have sucked up all the radio stations that went bankrupt. So back in, let's say, for an example, a city-grade signal covers a whole large city, and then a suburban signal for uh, would be uh, just my half partial of a city. So for an example, in 2004, a suburban signal in Chicago went for 5.5, uh, went for uh, $9 million and uh, $7 million. Now, fast forward, because of these bankruptcies, there's no one to buy radio stations anymore, TV stations anymore. Mm. So the prices have plummeted where actually people like us might be able to actually get some funding and purchase radio stations and maybe make some, uh, you know, progressive radio stations in our towns. Mm. Uh, the Suburban Signal went for $9 million in 2004, just recently sold for only $5.5 million. The other one for $7 million went for $1.6 million. Now for a TV, and then the city-grade signal in Chicago in 2001 went for $165 million. That shuts out people like us who want to buy radio stations. Uh, in 2018, a uh, city-grade signal in Chicago only went for $21.5 million. But you know, the, like the, a lot, but it's actually, when you compare it, yeah. you know, it's crazy. No, it's... It, and, but here's the, here's, the, here's, yeah. here's the other problem. Okay, quickly. Um, <laughs> because of the bankruptcies and the con consolidation and the ownership caps, 
the only people, the only corporations that are really buying radio stations that are able to right now is Christian conservative organizations. Mm. See, and that's the thing. The, uh, the progressives, wherever they are, whether they're progressive corporations, progressive organizations, either they do not have the money or they do not step up to support uh, their people the way folks on the right do. They do not understand the importance, uh, in this case, of the radio. And as I was uh, speaking with uh, Sue Wilson, the importance of uh, the same thing on television. Doogie, I hate to give you short shrift here, but we, I got, yeah, we need, I'm up we against need the clock. We need a new America. Yeah. We need a new air America. All right. Thank you, brother. Good to hear from you, Doogie. Thank Please you. Uh, don't be a thank stranger. All right. Uh, let me get, do I have time for one more here? Let me go to John in Mar Vista. Hey, John, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Yeah, hi. I got my shots out of the uh, public nonprofit. I got a text from UCLA. Uh, called them back. They said, uh, can you come in day after tomorrow? Anyway, I went to Westwood in the basement of the UCLA hospital. Yep. I had both my shots. I didn't feel the needle in either one of them. I waited 15 minutes both times, no reactions, nothing. It was so painless and everything. It was like, I, I think, I'm not, I'm suspicious they didn't even give me a shot. <laughs> I had nothing, no reactions, no nothing. You know what? When, when I had uh, my shot a, a little bit over a week ago, my first shot, I got the Moderna shot, and I sat next to somebody who was sort of a young guy, and he said, did you feel anything? And I said, yeah, it sort of felt like a, you know, a, a, the lightest little pinprick. He said, I didn't feel anything. He was nervous. He was, he was young. I said, how old are you? He was like 26. He said he had never gotten a vaccination before, at least as an adult. I think he was worried he didn't actually get a shot at all. Same with me. <laughs> so, but I think you did, John. Thank you. Good to know. No wait times currently at UCLA. Appreciate that information, John. And as I said at the top of the show, even if you're not a Kaiser Permanente member, you can go to kp.org and sign up. I got to get out. Running behind. Sorry, Des. Uh, thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my board operator, Federico Garcia, to my guest today, Sue Wilson of the Media Action Center, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is greatly appreciated. It is always an honor. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the bradblog. I'll see you there till we see you here next time. Hopefully tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.